Please turn with me to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. We'll be looking at chapter 3 and verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's inspired Word. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Thus far is a reading of God's holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, we've all heard the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. And what this essentially is saying, or what it is trying to convey to us, is that those who are similar, similar in ideas, and what they like, and what they value, and what they believe in, you can usually find those people spending time together. And that could be a good thing or also a very bad thing. Take, for example, perhaps teenage children in a neighborhood who love basketball. They come home from school and they all meet at the park to play basketball. In the evenings, they go to each other's house to watch basketball games. They're good kids. It's harmless fun. They are brought together by their love of basketball. That is where we might say birds of a feather flock together is a, is a fine thing, is, is a very good thing. But also, we know that there are other groups who gather. Groups who are far less productive. Who might be those who cause trouble and mischief. And yet, as parents, when we identify these things, we say to our children, right, don't hang out with this group. Because we see that they are troublemakers and that we don't want that to rub off on our own children. And yet, although what I am saying might be generally true, it is not always the case. Oftentimes within groups, you might have people gather who, who bear some similarity. But members of that group might have a very different character. Let's take that group of, of teenage basketball players as an example. Let's say you have eight neighborhood kids who are good kids, who obey their parents, who, who do well in school, and who play basketball together. And then you have two kids who move into the neighborhood and they share a love for basketball. But unlike these other eight children, they are rebellious. They don't do well in school. They cause trouble and mischief. And they are disobedient to their parents. What tends to happen? 
their negative influence tends to rub off on those good children, doesn't it? And so they, they, begin, they begin to take on the nature of those rebellious kids and those eight that were once good kids. And that group that just loved basketball tends to become something other. But this infectious negative influence isn't just something that happens to impressionable teenage children. In fact, this happens even to adults. And we don't have to look far to find an example. We can look to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. If you recall from this letter, there are Judaizers who have come into the church and who have distorted the Gospel. They're trying to bring the saints back under the the yoke of the law. And what was Paul's response to them? What did he tell these saints? Chapter 5, verse 7 through 9, he says this, You were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, is something that they would have been familiar with. This is a metaphor taken for when the Jewish people at the Passover were told to eat only the bread that was unleavened. They were required to clean their house to make sure that no leaven got into that dough. Because if it did, they were told they would be cut off from the congregation of Israel. That's how important it was that they were not to allow any leaven to get into that dough in order that it might leaven the entire loaf. And so Paul's message to them was very clear. It is we are not to tolerate these people within our church. Because if you let this teaching and this belief permeate the church, it will end up spreading like gangrene, infecting the entire congregation. And this is Paul's concern in our text this morning. The church of the Thessalonians being adversely affected by those whom he says were walking in idleness as we read in the ESV translation, but could also be translated walking unruly or disorderly. But what's even more concerning to Paul and what undergirds Paul's message here is his concern of the reflection that this will have upon Christ and upon the church and upon the advancement of the kingdom. And so this morning, we we want to look at three points for why Paul warns against disorderliness. There are going to be three points. First is that it sullies the church. It sullies the church. Point two is it contradicts our example. And point three, it goes against God's labor ordinance. It goes against God's labor ordinance. So now in verse 6, look once more with me. We read, That Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Now it's important to remember that this is not the first time that Paul has had to address this with the saints. We can look back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11 where Paul says this, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands 
as we have instructed you. And why did He say that was important? We'll look at verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And so we see that disorder was already an issue in the church from the first letter. Remember we said people were quitting their jobs. They were saying Christ could return at any moment. And this is the same issue now that Paul is having to address once again in our text today. People unwilling to work, focused on the return of Christ, stirring up unrest among others, becoming busybodies, meddlers, and in doing so, becoming a great burden upon others. But unlike before, Paul says because these people continue in their disorderliness and and are unwilling to work, you are to keep away from such people. You are to withdraw yourselves from those people in the church who are unwilling to obey our commands. Now this isn't excommunication, which is the the final step in church discipline. We are to think of this more like no private fellowship with them. You are not to be hanging out with them and surrounding yourselves with them, making them think that their behavior is okay. Making them think that this lifestyle is acceptable. Now I know that this idea of removing ourselves from a a brother or a sister might be shocking to some. But this is exactly what Paul says. You are to keep away from, explicitly he says, brothers, other believers, if they are being disorderly. But as shocking as that might sound, that we are to keep away from some brothers or sisters in the church, someone might might ask, well, what is that terrible, grave sin that they have done that has caused us to keep away from someone? Did they commit adultery? Did they fall into some sort of idolatry? Did they abuse their spouse? Are they, did they get caught stealing something? I mean, for, for these sins I listed, maybe someone would be willing to keep away from, from a brother or a sister. But still I say maybe, because it seems like in today's society, it takes a lot for us to, to, to keep away from one another, no matter how grave the sin. But none of those sins were the sins that these believers in Thessalonica committed. Paul said, keep away from them because they were being disorderly. And people might say, disorderly? That's that's why we must keep away from someone? Because perhaps they were were gossiping a little? We get that from 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 2. Remember, not the, the Thessalonians were being quickly shaken or alarmed by a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from from the apostle perhaps they were gossiping uh, perhaps they were they were meddling they weren't living quietly as paul said as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 11 perhaps they were unwilling to work and so they were eating and taking from others in the christian community because they were unwilling to work and to to earn anything on their own so that, that's the reason, really, because they're unwilling to work and they maybe they meddled in people's business a little. That's why we shouldn't fellowship with them. And Paul would say, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. You see, it's telling that people are more willing to allow the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church 
to be blasphemed and to be mocked and ridiculed because we have some Christian friend who is sinning against them, but yet who we are unwilling to, to keep away from. We rather keep fellowship with them and allow God's name to be blasphemed than to keep away from them because it might be an uncomfortable thing to do or because it might hurt their feelings. But this, means, but this is because we, we value God so very little then. And we value our personal relationships with other believers more than we value our personal relationship with Christ. And that shouldn't be. First, because we love God and we love His will and we want to honor, honor Him and honor His will. And all of that should supersede our love for one another. But not only do we keep away because we love God and we love His will, but we also keep away because when we do not, and we treat them as if what they are doing is okay, we are guilty of approving that sin. That is what Paul says in Romans 1. You give approval to those who practice evil deeds. And others see that. People see that. They take notice of that. Oh, this is how those Christians are. They, they tell us we can't not to do this or do that. But when people in their midst do it, they don't keep away from them. They go right along in relationship with them. This is the God they serve. A God who allows them to be lazy and insolent and eat off the table of others because they're unwilling to work. What kind of God is that? Even unbelievers have an innate sense of responsibility to work. It is oftentimes unbelievers who are the hardest working. They work seven days a week. They don't take time off. And so we muddy the name of Christ. We sully the name of the church. We hinder the advancement of the Gospel. We turn people away from the faith through disorderliness and irresponsibility and by the unwillingness to keep away from those who are committing sin. And so just like Paul, we ought to see the importance of not selling the name of Christ or His church. And in fact, do the very opposite. We ought to have great zeal and fervor to uphold God's holy name. As, we, as what Paul is addressing here today has, has to do with obedience and disobedience. Right? Paul says they were walking idly and they were doing so because they were going against the tradition that they had received. What was that tradition they received? We, we said this last week. It was the, the oral teachings of Paul, which were later written down for us in his epistles and letters. It was also those letters that he has already written. Right? But they did not listen to his instruction. Paul already told them the first time in 1 Thessalonians. He admonished them to, to work hard and live quietly. And yet they refused to listen. And so because they refused to listen and because admonishment didn't work, we must now take it a step further, Paul says. Because they were bringing reproach upon the Gospel. And what does our Lord Jesus say about those who cause others to stumble? In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 2, Jesus says this, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You see, this is how important Jesus views our responsibility of living faithfully and serving Him faithfully before the world. 
Yet even when a believer does sin in the manner in which Jesus or Paul describes, we are not to keep away from them in order to push them away from the faith. We don't keep away from them in order that we might mock them and laugh at them and have a joke at their expense. No, we do it for the reason Jesus says in the very next verse in Luke 17.3, to bring them to repentance. That is why we are to keep away. That we might then restore them to full communion with the church. And so it's important to keep in mind who Paul's addressing in this letter. He is addressing believers, not unbelievers. This is why we should see this sin of disorderliness and the unwillingness to work as such an intolerable sin in the church. It's an intolerable sin. We should see that the world, perhaps they might be lazy. They might refuse to work. And so we aren't to keep away from them. We need to interact with them so that we might proclaim to them the Gospel. So we might point them to Christ. So we might display Christ-likeness before them. That we might be an example for them. Yes, we know that faith comes by hearing, right? But oftentimes, the willingness to come and hear is brought about through the attractiveness of your life. And it is this example then that moves us into point two this morning. That disorder contradicts our example. It is Paul's example why he was with them in verse 7-9 through that he uses to remind them how he worked and toiled when he was with them and he took no advantage of them, that he paid for everything when he was with them. Look back at verse 7. Paul says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. You see disorder, unruliness, idleness. There are all manners of living which are opposed to the example that Paul gave them. Paul says, we lived orderly among you. We lived responsibly among you. Not only did we tell you with our words what God commands, but we also lived it out ourselves. We gave you a God, a good godly example. We paid for everything. We ourselves worked night and day to not be a burden to you by our presence. Yet Paul says, it's not as if I didn't have the right to. I was working. I came to proclaim to you, to teach you. It is not as if I didn't have the right to ask for these things. But I willingly gave up my right for the sake of the Gospel and for the good of this church. In today's society, people are up in arms about a lot of things. Politicians work to pass bills so that they might help what's ailing society. See, but the problem that so many people have, and this is all societies, all governments around the world, is that they see those in leadership positions demand one thing of the people and they have a second set of standards for themselves. Don't they? They take, for example, uh, you know, we're told we are not to pollute this world. We are to stop. We are to, to pull back on whatever pollutes. 
Uh, we, we are the cause of climate change. And yet, uh, politicians are the ones who fly around in private jets doing more harm to the world than you and I could do. And so for a lot of people, it's hard to, to square these ideas. But you see, it's always easier to, to point the finger at others and demand something out of them. But it's much harder to do the very thing that you are demanding. And yet, brothers and sisters, Christ did. Christ did. Christ voluntarily humbled Himself. Christ came and He served and He suffered. Christ was the chief exemplar of the faith. And now if He asks us to do the very same thing, who here is willing to raise their hand and object? No hypocrisy was found on the lips of Christ. No hypocrisy was seen in any of His actions. And yet, unfortunately, this hypocrisy isn't just a problem in secular society. It is likewise a problem within the church. We can probably look back to many Christian leaders and ministers who have been removed from the pulpit because of sin. You can take adultery as one. You can probably look back in their archives of sermons and see that they have preached against it, but they are guilty of it themselves. You see, but this is a problem for everyone because it is a a sin problem, a, a human problem. We say, do as I say, not as I do. Maybe many of us have, have grown up with parents who were like that. Or who even said that. Maybe we had friends who had parents who, who said who said that. What a, what a terrible message though that is, isn't it? But that is not the example that Christ left. Christ did everything that He calls us to do. And He did it to perfection. He was perfectly obedient. He perfectly loved God and loved neighbor. And that's why this do as I say, not as I do, is not a Christian message. And why Paul was willing to go beyond what he had to in order to not bring reproach upon the name of Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves today, brothers and sisters, do we have that same mind as Paul? Are we willing to do and to live just as Paul did? Willing to to give up or to go beyond what is called of us? for the sake of others, and for the sake of the Gospel. You see, Paul willingly set aside his own liberty. Paul willingly gave up his own rights. So often people say, I'm not giving up anything that's mine for anyone else. Those are my rights. I have the right to do it. Why should I stop for anyone else? But we need to look at Paul's example and adopt his way of thinking. That our, our, prior, our priority should not be to hold on to what is ours, but rather to be a, a faithful witness to the world, no matter what the cost. We need to think beyond ourselves to see what we're doing and how it affects others and their relationship to Christ. How it affects us and our relationship to Christ how it affects the advancement of the Gospel. Because you better believe this is what Paul has in mind. This is what Paul is thinking as he willingly gives up. But this takes self-denial. We looked at this, if you remember, a few Wednesdays ago. We looked at self-denial. 
Which is not, not giving in at all to sin. Not giving in at all to anything that is opposite the will of God. And yet also be being ready and willing to give up anything that is rightfully ours if God so demands it. Right? This is what Paul did. He exercised self-denial. He didn't claim anything that was lawfully his. And rather, he gave it up in order to give them example to imitate. And so this is the attitude that ought to be present here, even in this church. Right? Self-denial is an identity marker of the Christian. It does not make you a Christian. But it gives evidence that you are one. That you have ears to hear the instruction of God. That you have eyes to see and imitate those godly examples. That you have a heart that loves God and loves the will of God. And it is when we do this, all of us working in conjunction, that we have sweet fellowship. And it is when we are living faithfully and obediently to the will of God that this is a great aroma that goes up to heaven that God smells. And He delights in it and He is pleased by it. Now to the world, this might seem odd. It might seem different or weird to them, this, this faith and obedience of these, of these people. But it's good because we aren't to look like the world. We aren't to act like the world. We aren't to think like the world. We are to be a light unto the world. And so, brothers and sisters, we must purpose within ourselves to never bring disgrace upon the church. We are to see the need and the importance of being a godly example to our children, to new converts, to our spouse, to one another, to the world. And not only our words, but in how we live. For the power of God is not only seen in the renewing of our minds, but also in the reforming of our actions. And both of these then should help to shape our view of work and labor. This is the great issue that Paul takes up this morning. They were unwilling to work. But the believer, we must recognize in the fourth commandment, the importance of labor. Look at the fourth commandment today. Not only is the fourth commandment about resting one day, the first day of the week, but we are also told the other six days you are to do what? You are to labor. And so one is as important as the other. They go hand in hand. Now a part of the problem in Thessalonica may have been that these saints had thought that Christ had returned already in some spiritualized manner. Remember, the problem in 1 Thessalonians was they thought He was coming any moment. The problem in 2 Thessalonians is they thought perhaps in some spiritualized manner He had already come. And if He had already come and they are in eternal rest, they say, well, why must we work? But this is because they had a faulty view of work. They thought that, that work and labor was a part of the curse. But that is not true. We were created to work. It was not a result of the fall. Work was absolutely a part of God's created order. And it is our responsibility to do so if we are able. Now obviously, this takes different shapes and forms, especially depending on, on one's age. We work differently. We labor, we labor differently. 
If you are in your 20s or 40s or 60s or retired. But even if you are retired, we are to labor, right? In, in reading our Bibles and prayer and fellowship and, and, and being a godly example to others and, and doing good for our neighbor. There is never a time in our life where we get to just be lazy and put our feet up and do nothing. Living in mom and dad's basement at 30 without a job. That is irresponsibility. That is disorderliness. And that goes against God's labor ordinance. Which brings us to point three. Look at verse 10 with me, please. Paul says in verse 10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Now how far society has gone from this principle. And if you could just imagine if people thought, that Paul, for Paul to say to keep away from people who are being disorderly was mean and cruel. What they would think about this statement, that you are not even to aid someone in eating if they are unwilling to work. But our duty before God is to work. God has commanded it. He sanctioned it. It was built into the very fabric of the created order. And I want you to look at this with me, please. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. We will look at this together. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Well, we will see that God has commanded prior to the fall our responsibility to work. Genesis 2.15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of work, uh, garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so we see prior to the fall, man was to work. So what changed after the fall? Well, look one chapter over and look at verses 17 to 19. Our Lord says to Adam, because you have not listened, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. You see, as a result of the fall, God cursed the ground. The curse isn't labor itself. It is the type of labor now. The kind of labor. Herein lies the difference. Now, labor is harder. We do it with pain and with sweat. And we endure hardship in order to produce and to gather our food. But it's here in verse 19 that I think Paul is alluding to in our text in verse 10. Where he says, if you don't want to work, then don't let them eat. He says, don't feed them if they're unwilling to sweat for their food. Paul says, don't feed them. Because in doing so, all you are doing is encouraging more laziness. We see this happen all the time. Parents who who take care of their adult children and support them. All they do is encourage more laziness. Because they're unwilling to do, uh, what is that, show them tough love, we like to call it, right? But sometimes if you love someone, the best thing to do for them might be the hardest thing. But you have to do it. 
because they should not be blessed by laziness. Rather, it is the one who works hard who is to be blessed. Having food and drink are a reward of hard work and they are a blessing from God. This is what we read in Psalm 128, verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Work is something we all need to do to sustain our existence. And yet, even the idea of work and how we are to work, we oftentimes have a very unbiblical view. We may not like our employer. We might not like the place we work. And we say, well, I'm not going to work that hard for them. Those who treat me unfairly, I'm going to do the very least and give the very least amount of effort I can give. Right? People do this all the time. They give minimal effort in everything they do. That is because they have a poor work, work ethic. And this translates to all of their life. This is why we see so much biblical illiteracy in this Christian circles. They say, why would I spend wasting my time during the week reading the Bible when I can go on Sunday and hear it read to me? We check the box and we move on. We're willing to be lazy and idle in many areas of our life. And yet, what is it that we are called to do? In all areas of our life, we are called to honor and glorify God in everything. Well, laziness does not glorify God. Idleness does not honor God. What is the principle of labor that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7? He says this, We are to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see, each person's vocation is a vocation and a calling given to you from the Lord. And He expects us to work in such a manner knowing that our labor represents Him. And it is a reflection of our faith, the faith that we have in Him. Calvin said, the Lord commands every one of us in all actions of life to regard His vocation. We are to think of our vocation as a post in which God has assigned us to. And perhaps if more people thought in this manner, we would exercise ourselves in our vocation with cheer and delight dedicating ourselves to God in whatever it is that we do. Whether that is we work in the office, or we work in the field, or we work in the home. Now the most sacred of all vocations is that of the minister who proclaims the Gospel. And so how much greater they must strive to honor God and to serve Him with gladness and with all diligence. I think that's why Paul was willing to go above and beyond what He was called to do in order that He might serve His heavenly Master, that He might not cause this young church full of new converts to have any, any roadblock between them and the Gospel, between them and their faith. So He was willing to work and do everything to not be a burden on them in any way, to give them any cause to question the Gospel or question Paul's motives. And like Paul, Brothers and sisters, we should not do anything to put an obstacle between people and the Gospel. This is Paul's message. Work hard so that you don't sully the church or the name of Christ or that you don't hinder the Gospel. Of course, we are called to help out the poor. 
We are called to help widows and orphans. We are to help those brothers and sisters who perhaps have fallen on hard times through no, no fault of their own. But we are commanded not to help the one who refuses to lift a finger. We aren't to aid the lazy and the disorderly who have no care about what their behavior does to the church. Instead, we are, we are to listen to the commands of God. We are to seek out good and godly examples and mimic those. And yet, for those who are disobedient in the church, we do them well and we show them love when we refuse to help them. And instead, we keep away from them in order that we might forward along their repentance. And so we return to our introduction that saying, birds of a feather flock together. What would people say about us? What kind of flock are we? If they said, oh, there they are hanging out together. Birds of a feather flock together. Hopefully they would say that we are Christ's flock. That we are examples of godliness, every one of us. That we are examples of faithfulness to Christ. That we live lives by the, by faith in the power of God and live consistency in, in doing the very things that we say. That we walk worthy before outsiders. That they might see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. And out of love for God and out of love for the church, we are to protect the church from those who would do her harm. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That is what Paul is talking about. We must love God, seek the good of His name in the church, doing those things that might seem difficult. We must be willing to keep away from those who refuse to obey our Lord's commands. But even then, we do it out of love for our neighbor. This is why ministers get up and proclaim the Word and teach and preach and admonish so that all might be presented mature in Christ. So that when Christ returns, He might be able to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. And yet that only happens if we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel which we have heard. And yet, this can only be accomplished through the atoning work of Christ through the shedding of His blood. It was in the body of His flesh that we have been reconciled to the Father. And as Christ accomplished this work on our behalf, let us now honor God by our labor in our work, bearing good fruit in every aspect and area of our life, pleasing Him in every area, walking as sons and daughters with all joy and patience, knowing that this curse of hard, strenuous labor will one day cease when Christ returns. But until that day, let us labor vigorously, not selling the name of the church. Let us follow after godly examples. And let us obey God's labor ordinance. Brothers and sisters, please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, so often we are idle We are lazy. And we need Your help, Father, to stir us up to good works, to give us a greater desire to, instead of kicking our feet up at night, to open our Bibles and to read Your Word and to spend time in fellowship with You. 
instead of being idle, Father, we need You to stir us up to prayer. So often, Father, we allow that corrupt nature to overtake us. And yet, Father, though through this new nature that You have given us by the Spirit, we pray, Lord, that You would give us a greater desire to do those things that You have called us to do, to labor strenuously after You, after Your Word, to bless You and praise Your name by laboring hard in all areas of work that we have been called to. Yet, Father, You have given us examples. We pray, Lord, that You would turn us to, the, to those examples that we might mimic them. The greatest example of all being Christ Jesus our Savior. We are so thankful for this chief exemplar of the faith. And so, Father, we pray this day that You would conform us more and more to Him that we might honor and praise Your name. And we, Father, we come before You asking all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.